Listener Production. Hey guys, and welcome to The Briefing. It's Katrina Blowers here with you. Well, for the first time, women are leading big organisations, including Qantas, the RBA and X, which at first glance could seem like a huge win for gender equality until you realise all three have been recently mired in controversy. Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin resigned after three years amid a string of scandals from the telco, and she follows in the footsteps of Fortescue Metal's female CEO who left just six months into her role. So today, Antoinette is looking into this when a leadership position could actually just be a poison chalice. Forget glass ceilings. They're now glass cliffs, which are unfairly punishing female leaders. The glass cliff, however, is essentially women being placed into leadership positions when they are high visibility but also high risk roles, when basically a whole bunch of stuff has gone wrong. Glass cliffs and female leadership, that's in the second half of this episode. But first, we're going to cover off today's headlines with Bensie and Siebert. It is Thursday, the 7th of December. Hi, Katrina. Former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has begun two days of giving evidence to a COVID inquiry where he's denied deleting nearly six months' worth of WhatsApp messages from his old phone. The 5,000 messages covered the arrival of the virus and the period leading up to and just after the first lockdown and are thought to be a significant source of information for the inquiry, which is looking at government decision-making. I don't know the exact reason, but it looks as though it's something to do with the app going down and then coming up again, automatically erasing all the things uh, between that date when, when it went down and the moment when it was last backed up. I don't know. This just sounds like the high-tech version of a dog ate my homework. <laughs> oh, I don't know that that's going to fly. Uh, Johnson telling the inquiry he should have twigged the seriousness of the virus sooner and says earlier action could have been taken. He's defended the timing of the first lockdown, saying that modelling had been incorrect and he had been advised not to impose measures too early. So all of this comes, you know, the backstory to all of this is that he's been accused of being too slow to take action during the pandemic and not being able to make his mind up. So protesters were in this inquiry. They interrupted his testimony and had to be asked to leave. Um, Some of them were members of bereaved families who stood there holding pieces of paper saying things like, the dead can't hear your apologies. Well, it was a bit of a weird apology from Boris Johnson. He says things like, inevitably, we got some things wrong. At the time, I felt we were doing our best in difficult circumstances. I'm deeply sorry for the pain and loss. It's very, um, I'm sorry for your loss, but it's hard to hear uh, taking responsibility in those apologies. Yeah, typical kind of politician's apology. Well, laws to re-detain some of the highest risk convicted criminals released from immigration detention after the High Court ruling last month have passed Federal Parliament overnight. The bill was passed hours after a fourth released detainee was charged in Melbourne for allegedly stealing luggage from Melbourne Airport and breaching a curfew. Immigration Minister Andrew Giles says the new powers to lock up previous offenders would apply to, quote, the worst of the worst rather than all members of the released group. And that gives some clarification that the opposition's been asking for 
all week about, you know, who these amendments would apply to. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Um, you know, we've got four people now who've been re-detained so far. So, uh, yeah, let's wait and see what unfolds from here. Certainly. Um, I, I don't think that the government has made it clear who exactly out of this group, but just described sort of the worst of the worst was the quote used there. But I think one of the points missing in all all of this debate is that for years and years and years, Australia locked up asylum seekers indefinitely. And the fact that the High Court uh, made this decision last month is a really historic moment. Um, and it's true that some of these uh, formerly convicted detainees have reoffended. I think Antoinette made the point earlier this week, uh, people reoffend in Australia all the time and it's only because of the high-profile nature of all of this happening that uh, we're hearing about these crimes. A man has been arrested in the US in connection to the fatal Weambilla police shooting in Queensland last year. 58-year-old Don Day has been taken into custody as part of a joint operation involving Queensland police, the FBI and local authorities. He's accused of spreading Christian end-of-days ideology in relation to the attack. Nitiana Mann from the FBI says we'll know more about the man and his involvement in coming days. All of these matters, description of the property, description of the crime, identifiers, they will be made publicly available through the court in Phoenix. Yeah, so you might remember it was Gareth, Stacey and Nathaniel Train who carried out these shootings, oh gosh, it's nearly a year ago now. Um, forensic analysis of the Train's online world has revealed Gareth Train began following Don Day on YouTube around May 2020. And then a year later, they began commenting on each other's videos. From then, Day began regular correspondence with the family. And on the day of the Weambilla shooting, Stacey Train speaks to camera saying, We'll see you at home, Don. We love you. And then weeks later, Don filmed a video from his property in Arizona saying that Gareth, Stacey and Nathaniel Train did exactly what they were supposed to do, and that is, quote, to kill these devils. Awful. It's me. We're finishing on a much lighter note. Time magazine has named Taylor Swift as their person of the year for 2023, beating out Russian President Vladimir Putin, King Charles and even Barbie. Time magazine editor-in-chief Sam Jacobs wrote that in a divided world where too many institutions are falling, Taylor Swift has found a way to transcend borders and be a source of light. Can Taylor Swift get any bigger? You know, Vincent, we were talking talking, Taylor Swift has had a phenomenal career and I don't feel like she's ever done anything super controversial. And now she's person of the year. It's pretty amazing that she's <laughs> that she's managed to get this gong. I mean, it, it's gone to world leaders, it's gone to Nobel Peace Prize winners, and now it's Tay-Tay. I reckon there's going to be a lot of teenagers who are fully backing that decision. Maybe not just teenagers, 20 and 30-year-olds too, and good on them. Absolutely. All right, we'll leave you there. Antoinette's going to jump back in in just a sec and uh, bring us this briefing topic on whether glass cliffs are unfairly punishing female leaders.
For decades, we've been talking about the need for more women in leadership roles. And there has been some progress, like around one in five CEOs are women and over a third hold other key management positions. But there's also growing evidence that the figures don't reveal the often treacherous waters female leaders unfairly face. So research shows that women and people from ethnic minorities are more likely to be chosen to lead a company or a sports team or heck, even a country when it's in crisis mode. And some may say, well, this is an opportunity to bring in a fresh approach and different skills. But many others are concerned it's just a glass cliff because it puts crisis leaders in a really precarious position and staying at the top and not toppling over the edge can be really short-lived. Shivani Gopal is the CEO of Eladex, which is a networking and mentoring platform for female leaders. And she's here to unpack how to identify a glass cliff and, crucially, ways to avoid them altogether. Shivani, welcome to The Briefing. What is, first of all, the difference between the glass ceiling and the glass cliff? So we've all heard about the glass ceiling and some of us, or in fact, most of us have been fortunate enough to come across it and experience it ourselves. And that glass ceiling is when we just can't break through a certain leadership level. In real life terms, it's often experienced once you get past middle management. So that is the glass ceiling, women not moving into leadership positions. The glass cliff, however, is essentially women being placed into leadership positions. So in some ways, it's the opposite. But we are at risk of falling off this incredible platform of leadership. Why? Because women are more likely to be placed in leadership positions when they are high visibility, but also high risk roles, when basically a whole bunch of stuff has gone wrong. And so someone's gone, well, let's get a woman to come in and clean the mess. So women come in, take these positions, but they are more likely to actually be at risk and fall off the other side because they're full of scrutiny and they're incredibly hard to navigate. So what do you think causes this glass cliff scenario? Do you think it's well-intentioned? Like we're going to bring a female leader in, a breath of fresh air, somebody with different skills to navigate these treacherous waters, or is it more likely to be deliberately underhanded? I think with all things that come with bias, it does start with good intention. People don't ordinarily come out there and say, I'm going to try to bring a woman into an impossible position and she fails, she's going to fail spectacularly. Everyone's going to see that and we're going to bring a a safe pair of hands again or a more visible pair of hands by way of what we think is normalised leadership. Women are now leading Qantas, the RBA and X for the first time, which at a surface level looks like a, a win for leadership positions. When you saw those announcements, those recent announcements, were you, you know, applauding or you know nervously waiting to see what's going to happen next? A little bit of both, Antoinette. I mean, you first off, as you've said, right, we've got some women in in really high profile leadership positions, which is fantastic, and that is certainly a win. But I think that there is a huge amount of nervousness for them, and if these women leaders aren't acknowledging it, certainly it is there. If they do fail, they're going to fail spectacularly on a world stage. You know, we know that, you know, for example, Michelle Bollock, who's come into the RBA governor role, uh, we've got Vanessa Hudson, who's come into the Qantas CEO role. Not only are they coming into roles that have been deeply problematic recently, they're replacing leaders who were deeply unpopular. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're coming in from, from a backseat already. 
They've got a lot of work to do. They've got to fix reputational damage. They've got to fix brand damage. Um, They've got to build up trust again. And I, I mean that both from the RBA and Qantas, actually. If things don't work out for them, it is often the fact that the woman failed rather than she was dealt an impossible hand. And what I fear around that is that that would make more potential women leaders second guess themselves and think, do I actually want that position? Do I want to be in a leadership position and and risk that? Could it be argued, though, that crisis situations may be seen by some women leaders as opportunities or perhaps, you know, as opportunities for them to utilise their skills or what they bring to a leadership role? Or similarly, that companies want to show, hey, we're listening, we're changing, we're changing our course, we're doing things differently at the top. It's a bit of both, right? Um, Women are incredibly skilled. We are phenomenal leaders and we have a huge level of empathy that we bring into roles. And so if we are coming into a glass cliff situation where there has been a bit of a mess made in this organisation, there is a lot of healing that needs to be done. There is a lot of repair work that needs to be done. You know, women are innately skilled, generally speaking, to do that. Why not take those opportunities? The point, however, is this. Whilst it's a phenomenal opportunity and it's an opportunity for you to decide if you want to take, the point is there should be more normalised, winnable, if I use that political term, opportunities as well. We need to have women in winnable seats, for example. We also need to have women in winnable leadership positions. What we need to normalise is not just, hey, we've got a mess on our hands, let's get a woman in for the job who can really pick up this reputation, build, heal, repair. Mm. We also need to have women in comfortable leadership positions that they can flourish in, their teams can flourish in, where women have roles of influence, authority, leadership, strong P&Ls and budgets. We need to get women into roles where there is a high level of psychological safety and a high inclination of acceptance so that women aren't standing on the sidelines going, oh, do I want this job? It's a great opportunity, but do I want to put myself through this? Do I want to put my family through this? Do I want to go through this mental load? And it should be, this is an incredible leadership opportunity where I can use my skills, expertise, education to thrive. So what does psychological safety for a CEO look like? Great question. Psychological safety for a CEO is about ultimate inclusion. And that is inclusion of voice, inclusion of influence, inclusion of power, inclusion of P&L, and also having inclusion of decision-making actually stem through the organisation. If I have recommendations, are they going to be heard Are they going to be valued? Are they going to be accepted throughout the organisation? Am I going to actually be able to yield the power that I hold? Or am I just here to look like I'm in a leadership position, to make the optics better for you and the board? Inclusion and psychological safety happens when I have more people who look and sound like me. That's when I have a high level of trust in the organisation. And that doesn't just stem it. And it's funny you should ask this, Antoinette, because we've actually just done this research at Elodex and, and looked at, you know, what creates psychological safety. When it boils down to it, it actually is quite simple. If I look around me and I have people who sound like me and look like me, I'm going to feel far more comfortable. I'm going to feel like I'm in my space. I can let my guard down a little bit. I can take risks because when you take risks, 
by definition, you are innovating. And when you have a leader in that kind of position, you absolutely must take risks. There's some research that came out of the UK which talked about glass cliff scenarios. And in those scenarios, female CEOs were most likely to be replaced by a male CEO. So are we in danger of not actually advancing the gender equity cause? We are. Indeed, we are in danger of that. And I think if you look at, you know, all sorts of pieces of data, you'll see that. You'll see that in the gender pay gap. You'll see that in the leadership gap. You'll see that at how lagging we are, you know, socially, politically, economically in all of those areas. And so that is a case of one step forward, two steps back when women are then replaced by men. But also it's the message that that sends as well, that a woman couldn't do that top job. And so now we've got a man who looks and sounds more like what a normal leader is to us. But yes, it is problematic in terms of the growth that we're getting. You know, we are still lagging behind on female CEOs, female board leaders as well. Um, And just on that too, what we're also finding is that uh, it's that same group of women who are constantly promoted at that executive director level, that board level. Um, So when women are going into these roles, it's the same woman who's holding multiple positions. So there's also um, so much work that needs to be done on not just widening the fact that we need more women in leadership positions, but we need to widen the pool as well. So there needs to be a lot of groundwork uh, from the bottom up that is done there. So what do organisations need to do and also aspiring female leaders need to do? What sorts of questions do they need to ask themselves to avoid this scenario, which sounds like it's problematic for women, it's problematic for gender equality, it's also problematic for the companies and organisations they're set up to lead? Stop fixing women, right? Women aren't the problem. Let's fix the systems. Let's fix the structures. Let's fix the power dynamics that are at play. And so this message is really to organisations. You know, if you find that you have an issue around inclusion, if you have an issue around diversity and women in leadership, that is your problem to fix. It's not a problem that's going to be fixed by parachuting a capable woman, but by parachuting that woman in. You need to make sure that there are enough safe voices, that there are enough capable voices around her for her to thrive. If we want to have a more inclusive organisation, if we want to have an organisation that is led by women, then we need to have women not just in CEO positions, in board positions, but we need to have them at the executive leadership team, at the general management team level, at the management team level, and so on and so forth. There needs to be work done around that. On the other side, um, for women coming into these roles, it's still an incredible opportunity. You just need to work through if this is the opportunity that is right for you. Are there other opportunities at the table? But this is your opportunity to negotiate. If someone is pulling you into an organisation because then they need you, that is when the power dynamics is on your side at that point. So I would use that just as much as you would use that as for salary negotiations. And, you know, we've coached so many women um, on, you know, how to earn more money. This is also the time to negotiate the terms at play. And that also means how do you negotiate the optics? How do you negotiate the introduction of your role? I've spoken to so many women who've been brought into these leadership positions, but there's been barely any announcements that have been made internally. Then they, you know, are paraded through the organisation saying, you know, hi, this is Sarah and, and, you know, she's brought in to to lead so-and-so. But there wasn't the brief behind the brief, which means that the power isn't taken up. For her. And what I mean by that is, hi, this is Shivani. She's been brought in, for example, to, to lead this organisation. I have backed her 
because I believe that she can really transform this organization in these ways. I've backed her because of her experience in these ways. I've backed her because of her credibility in these areas. And what I really want for our company and our organization to do is to gather around her and give her the resources and the support. We need that sponsorship in. Putting her into the roles just isn't enough. Shivani Gopal, CEO of Eladex, which is a networking and mentoring platform for female leaders. So when women and people of colour do finally shatter the proverbial glass ceiling, clearly the hurdles aren't over yet. They still face unwieldy challenges as they navigate taking the lead while avoiding missteps and pitfalls and ultimately failure when they do take on these roles in companies or organisations that are in crisis mode. And yes, I think it should be acknowledged that for some, their leadership skills may flourish in high pressure or complex situations. But I think Shivani raises some really crucial points. We need to really applaud moves by organisations that appoint female leaders and other minorities when the organisations are flourishing, when they're doing well, when they're not in PR crisis mode or plagued by scandal. Only when we don't send in minorities to fix structural problems can we really say that we're getting closer to equity. Listener.